Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Joining us today is Dr. Felix Wong, a postdoc at MIT and the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, and a co-founder of Integrated Biosciences, an early stage biotech company that intends to develop next generation therapeutics for cellular rejuvenation. He's also one of the lead authors of a fascinating recent paper published in Nature Aging entitled, Discovering Small Molecule Senolytics with Deep Neural Networks. I'm sure listeners of this podcast are no strangers to the idea that machine learning approaches have the potential to revolutionize drug discovery. And one of the main things that inspired me to invite Felix to appear on Translating Aging was the desire to share with you the details of at least one way that's working in the world today. We'll start the conversation by discussing the paper and then move on to let Felix tell us about his new company. Felix, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Chris. This isn't the first time cellular senescence has been mentioned on this show, and it certainly won't be the last but it's never a bad time for a little refresher. Felix, what are senescent cells and why might we want to get rid of them? Senescent cells are basically cells that do not divide and they do not divide typically because of a variety of stressors. Uh, these could include things ranging from say DNA damage to oxidative damage to macromolecules. And it's kind of an interesting question as to whether or not senescent cells are interesting therapeutic targets. The main advocacy for uh, them being a, a therapeutic target is that they secrete inflammatory uh, factors, uh, things like, as the audience may know, SAS, S-A-S-P, the senescence associated secretory phenotypes, as well as generally they lead to cellular dysfunction. So the thought is by clearing some of these senescent cells, by selectively killing senescent cells within a tissue, one could potentially rejuvenate uh, tissue function by decreasing things like uh, age-associated inflammation. Of course, uh, we now know that senescent cells are also broadly useful for some specific biological processes, for instance, wound healing. There's certainly kind of quite a bit of interest in drugging senescent cells, and I think there is also kind of further work that needs to be done as to what senescent cells actually do. And the evidence for the idea that senescent cells might be something we want to get rid of under some circumstances comes largely from experiments in mice, which showed that if we can genetically or pharmacologically eliminate senescent cells from the bodies of mice and their tissues, we can delay age-related disease and even extend lifespan. That's correct. So uh, there have been quite a few studies showing that the selective elimination of senescent cells increases, for instance, the efficacy of chemotherapy in certain types of cancers as well as broadly rejuvenate uh, mice in different ways by, say, restoring youthful function or restoring tissue integrity, et cetera. And a drug that eliminates senescent cells is called a senolytic. So don't some of these already exist? Why can't we just use those? Senolytics is a term that really came about in the past, say, around 10 years, starting from uh, seminal work that was done by a few researchers, including some at the Mayo Clinic, uh, showing that one can use targeted, let's say, discovery methods, things that are based on specific biological hypotheses regarding apoptosis, 
in order to discover small molecules that then selectively target proteins that basically protect apoptotic cells. So since 10 years ago, we have discovered or identified, if you will, quite a handful of senolytics. Perhaps the most well-known ones are DNQ, as well as ABT737 and ABT263, also known as nevidoclax. What is perhaps underappreciated is that senolytics don't necessarily work in, say, a broad-spectrum manner. So one senolytic that might work for a specific cell type might not work against a different cell type. And in addition, there's kind of been an overarching, I think, consensus that some senolytics um, might carry things like unfavorable medicinal chemistry properties. And so I think it's fair to say that despite that, you know, currently we do know a handful of senolytics that have also been demonstrated to work, for instance, in most models, there might be better senolytics out there. Okay, so you've convinced me that we need new senolytic molecules, but what's the matter with just doing an old-fashioned screen where you set up a whole lot of senescent cells in 96 or 384 well plates, add drugs, see which one makes the cell die, and then do secondary screens? We do a lot of that here, even uh, integrated and also for the nature aging piece. And that, in general, is a quite productive approach given the advances in high-throughput screening as well as advances in exploring new chemical spaces that are just happening really in the past, say, 10 or 20 years. That being said, there is a upper limit to the number of molecules that one can feasibly screen. For instance, theoretically, the space of drug-like molecules, which are molecules that, small molecules that have, say, favorable molecular weights, have kind of heterocycles and like might look actually like drugs, can number around, say, 10 to the 60. <laughs> I had no idea it was that big of a space. It is a massive space. And if you think about it, uh, you know, 384 well plates, uh, sure. I mean, even one, one, five, three, six well placed if you want to, right? But like, there's only so many you can do <laughs> and you're sampling a very, very small fraction of what's out there. Indeed, indeed. Okay, so I'm getting the idea that it's not so much a bad idea as it is expensive in time and resources. And essentially, it's impossible to search even a sliver of the available space of drug-like molecules. So what did you do instead? This kind of limitation, there's only so much one can do with, say, even a robot, things like, you know, an Echo or whatever kind of high-tech robots are available for high-throughput screening. In principle, you know, one might envision doing or getting over, like, getting in, like, 10,000 compounds, say, a day. And, you know, you can do this for like a year and sure, you might approach like, say, a million or 10 million compounds. But I think we reasoned that really a more productive way of trying to address the large complexity that's out there in chemical space is really to use machine learning. And of course, this is something that has been done in various other contexts, but interestingly has not yet been done until uh, we did it for Xenolytics. And so what we did was we set up a few pilot screens and uh, we did not go crazy here. We only screened around 2,500 compounds as really a proof of concept, but we trained machine learning models then to crawl also as a proof of concept, a much larger chemical space of 800,000 compounds. And I'm sure you'll have kind of additional questions as to, you know, what the findings were, but in a nutshell, we found that Machine learning models might allow us to more productively uh, search 
chemical space and increase kind of our working hit rates or our working shrewd discovery rates. So not only are you trying to increase the number of molecules you can look at, you're looking to be more efficient in terms of getting hits from the molecules that you do screen. There's two main features with the machine learning. One is that you generate some training data. And uh, of course, training data is quite important for any machine learning model, which is why we decided to screen ourselves this library of, say, 2,500 compounds. But given kind of this training data, you want the machine learning model to do two things. One is to identify new chemical matter from this 10 to the 60 space, ultimately, that I was talking about. And hopefully, the models can identify some compounds that are not in the training set that also have senolytic activity. So basically, the model might be able to enrich for actual senolytic compounds. In addition, there's also this question of generalizability. And what we mean by that is, uh, of course, we can train a model using kind of known senolytics, but if the model tells us that basically structural analogs of known senolytics or small molecules that look really similar to known senolytics are also senolytic, then there's not a lot of knowledge that's really generated. So what ideally we would want is for any model to be able to generalize, be able to predict chemical, say, scaffolds that the model has not previously seen and positively identify those uh, scaffolds as new senolytics. Everyone's hearing about the value of AI and drug discovery and the importance of machine learning approaches and tackling various kinds of astronomically sized problems. But I think that for a lot of us, and myself included most of the time, it's kind of a black box. So I know that we're talking about pretty sophisticated quantitative things here, but I'm wondering if you can illustrate for us somehow what's actually going on. And I'm going to give you a couple of leading questions and I want you to kind of go off leash and just and, and try to paint a picture for me. So what's a graph neural network? What does it mean to train it in this context? And then once it's trained, what does it then do? Typically, when one thinks of machine learning, uh, one might typically refer to things like, you know, neural networks and these other kind of fancy models. But in actuality, uh, one can kind of really simplify the process. It's really, you have some data, say data that could be represented by say points on a plot. And then your machine learning models just kind of want to identify regions of this plot that you can segregate into say positive and negative. So for instance, I might have like weather data. I might have any other types of data where I can like label say a class as positive or negative. In our case, uh, the data might look like chemical structures and the label might look like uh, positive if it's uh, senolytic, negative if it's not senolytic. You're really identifying, say, patterns in these points. It might be helpful kind of one way to think about this, albeit a bit simplistic, is to imagine a really high dimensional space where you have a lot of point clouds everywhere. And of course, if you were to map things to, let's say, like two-dimensional space, all the points would look like they're everywhere, right? Like if you were to just project everything onto a flat surface, you might not be able to discern any patterns. But there might be kind of, say, a high-dimensional space where you might be able to separate, say, the positive from the negative examples from just drawing a straight plane or something. And so in a nutshell, and it's a quite simplistic nutshell, but 
I think it helps your intuition. That's really what machine learning is doing, trying to kind of think about things in a very high dimensional manner and then trying to build models, aka things like really geometric constructs that help to separate what is positive and what is negative. And so in terms of what graph neural networks are, those are a specific type of neural networks. There's kind of a bit to unpack here, but the graph refers to chemical structures, namely that we can represent any chemical structure as a graph, namely a series of nodes and edges. So, I mean, think like social network, think like Facebook connectivity graph. Uh, you can represent chemical structures in much the same way, and you can kind of use these graphs now as inputs to any type of machine learning model. In this case, it's a neural network, but in principle, it could have been any kind of machine learning model. And of course, to impact things further, I should also tell you a bit about what neural networks are. That really refers to one specific type of machine learning model in which it's not really as simple as, say, trying to like fit a function or draw a straight line across points. Here, what you have is really a collection of, say, on and off switches or like neurons that really look at different features of any input and then uh, layer produce outputs that layer on top of each other. So that's kind of a hand-wavy way to express what neural networks are. But the main idea is that this type of neural network is really an artificial mimic of what we, or kind of what we believe to be the dot processes that underlie cognition. So there's kind of a biologically inspired engineering kind of underlying this, if you will. But in a nutshell, uh, one can think of it as a pretty complicated machine learning model. I mean, that gives me some intuitional handle on what you're saying. And w what I'm hearing is you have, you know, these graph neural networks, which essentially have nodes and edges and the strengths of the connections between the nodes can vary. And what you do when you train the neural network is you say, here is some data. Here are some properties that molecules have. Here's the answer to the question. Is it senolytic or not? And the training process involves adjusting the strengths of the connections between the nodes in your model such that the system can make accurate guesses about whether or not a molecule is senolytic or non-senolytic. I realized that I was imprecise, but is that more or less the right idea? That is correct. So in particular, uh, we are training these uh, graph neural networks in order to recognize things like, oh, does the nitrogen atom go here? Or like, should it look like a nitrogen atom and then a carbon atom? and kind of recognize these patterns, if you will, of chemical bonds and chemical atoms that are more likely to make a molecule become senolytic. But there's some high-level abstraction going on in the, in the execution of this system such that you don't just find things that are trivially the same as or trivially similar to a molecule that you already know. Like it's the exact same molecule, but it has an extra methyl group on one carbon. You're searching a much broader chemical space than even was in the training set, right? That's correct. And that's the beauty of this. So basically, we can train, as you just mentioned, we can train kind of these graph neural networks to learn from the training data, which is our screening data set of, say, 2.5 thousand compounds. And uh, once we've adjusted the weights of this neural network to kind of reflect the training data in terms of, again, like, does this bond go here or does this atom go here? We can then unleash it in principle on any, on databases as large as we want. 
And so we kind of unleash this trained neural network on a much larger database of 800,000 compounds that was assembled by the Broad Institute. It's a Broad Institute database. And what we found was really two things. To get back to kind of a point that you made, Chris, the model, of course, learns from the training data. So if there is, say, a positive example in the training data and the model sufficiently learns that, then when you apply it to something that's very similar to that positive example in the training data, then the model will light up. It will be like, yes, this looks really good. And of course, it makes sense as to why it would do so. We had uh, many instances of this, actually, where uh, this 800K space is a lot larger than the 2.5K space. And uh, one might anticipate that it also includes quite a few structural analogs or very similar compounds to some positive examples. I I would really think of this as, I I would say, evidence that like the machine learning model is learning what it should trivially learn, of course. But then what is quite interesting is that you can now start to push the limits of the model and telling the model that, for instance, one can say filter out some of these structurally similar compounds, tell the model that, okay, it's positive, but I don't want to consider that. I want to kind of go down the list and then start looking at compounds with predicted senolytic activity that are more and more structurally dissimilar. And that is uh, basically what we did in the paper. The technical kind of term that we use to measure similarity is called the Tanimoto similarity, which is really just a set-based distance measure of how similar two compounds is. But the main idea is that we thresholded based on chemical similarity to prioritize compounds that were chemically dissimilar from the training data set. And in doing so, we discovered senolytics that actually work. That's really cool. And one thing I want to bring forward into the conversation is distinct from a lot of other kinds of drug discovery processes, a critical thing here is you never tell your system what kind of target you want to hit. You never tell it anything about targets. I mean, I guess there's information about the targets that's latent in the hits in the original physical screen that you do and the ones that have senolytic activity, but you're not actually going for a target here. You're going for a phenotype. That's correct. That was also one of our kind of motivations is that what was fascinating to us about senescent cells is that unlike other, say, pathologies or other diseases, these cells are not really characterized by single targets. Uh, it's really, we're going after the entire senescence phenotype. And so our screen itself was also a phenotypic screen. We were not, again, measuring any target-specific activity. Although, as you correctly note, some of the target-specific activity might be kind of latent in what we identify as HIPS in the screen. But the rationale for kind of going after this more phenotypic approach is that it's kind of more of a top-down approach where we could, in principle, integrate more information across different targets in order to train, say, graph neural networks that have much more stronger predictive power than, say, just going after a specific, say, BCL family protein or heat shock protein, whatever protein target for senolytics. This is something that uh, we think holds a lot of promise. The rationale for really using graph neural networks uh, stems back from another paper by our chair of the scientific advisory board, uh, Jim Collins. Uh, he published a paper back in Cell back in 2020 showing the discovery of Hallison, one of, I would say, the first antibiotics to have been discovered using AI. And similar to kind of this antibiotic kind of centric approach, 
we are also taking this phenotypic driven viewpoint in training our models and also designing our screens. Back to biology. The neural network evaluation of this 800,000 compound space gave you some leads. And then you tested them in vitro in a system similar to the one that you used for the initial chemical screen. What did you then find? In vitro, uh, we tested them in, I believe, two additional models of senescence. In our initial screen, we used a well-characterized etoposide model of senescence, which is you induce senescence in lung fibroblasts, so IMR90 cells, by inducing DNA double-stranded breaks using etoposide. So, of course, that was quite useful as our primary screen, but we wanted to make sure that whatever compounds that we discovered was not specific to the top side induced uh, senescence. And so we also use two models. One is uh, doxorubicin induced senescence, another orthogonal model is DNA damage, as well as replicative senescence, which is basically you grow the cells until they stop dividing naturally, they reach their hayflick limit, and then they become senescent. And what we found was that our identified leads were broad spectrum in the sense that they are also effective. They are also senolytic in these different senescence models. Is there any way to know from your in silico work or this follow-up in vitro work, whether the compounds you discovered are in any way better than the senolytics we already know about? That's a great question. So in addition to kind of this in vitro characterization across different senescent models, what we also did in the paper was two things. One, we identified the main binding target or a major binding target of several kind of of our hit compounds. And we also tested one in mice. So the main target or one of the main targets for a handful of the hits that we identified seemed to be BCL family proteins. In particular, we looked at BCL2 in the paper. And one of the compounds uh, ending in 9078, I believe, we injected uh, IP into mice. We found that, at least in the kidneys, after a two-week treatment, uh, we found that P16, P21 expression uh, seems to have been decreased in the case of P16 quite significantly. Also, it seems like, uh, at least in the kidneys again, the accumulation of senescent cells as quantified by beta-galactosidase, a senescence biomarker, also seems to have decreased. So this really broadly points to potential in vivo efficacy of at least one of the identified compounds. And this compound also kind of works by targeting BCL family proteins. Since then, there's been pretty interesting follow-ups. But one of the things that we did make a point of noting in the paper itself is that this compound that we put in mice seems to have more favorable medicinal chemistry properties than known senolytics, in particular other BCL family inhibitors like ABT737 or ABT263, also known as Navidoclax. So in particular, this compound has things like a molecular weight that's less than 500 thousands, suggesting that it might be uh, more bioavailable and might permeate, say, the skin. It also possesses less kind of reactive chemical moieties, which might make it more amenable to uh, clinical dosing and uh, follow-up efforts. So it sounds like you looked at several biomarkers of senescence. And just to kind of point something out for listeners that might not be deeply grounded in the senescence field, none of these markers are in themselves specific to senescence. They're expressed in quite a few contexts 
And I think that the field is converging on the idea that single universal markers for senescence are unlikely to be found. And then we need to use multiple markers simultaneously in order to identify senescent cells. And that's fine. And you looked at three different markers and you didn't look cell by cell, but you, you saw that all three of them moved in the, in the direction that you want. And you conclude from that that you have a decrease in the senescent cell burden. In the paper, I don't think you did, but in any of your follow-up, did you look at any kind of functional health endpoint in the mice that you were exposing to this drug? The short answer is yes, and this is something that we are actually actively working on. So stay tuned uh, for kind of more results there. Fantastic. Can you give us a peek? Can you say it looks promising or not? We've been working on several fronts. One is to develop even more selective analogs of the compounds that we've uh, presented in the Nature Aging paper. And the other is to dose, say, mice and uh, different mouse models of diseases with them to broadly explore the different types of disease for which these compounds might be useful. I'm really excited to maybe be able to share some of these results in the coming uh, few months or a year. Fantastic. Well, I'm definitely going to be looking forward to that. So let's go back to the idea of using neural networks to find molecules of interest. Assuming that you have access to an in vitro screening technology that you can use to generate a training set, is this a general approach to drug discovery? Or is there some reason to believe that this approach would be particularly well-suited to senolytics or some other small class of drug types of which senolytic drugs are an example? Yeah. So in principle, it could be quite general. And the reason why I say this is the idea of just using graph neural networks. It's really quite a general idea. It's basically any neural network that takes as input chemical structures represented as graphs. And so uh, this has previously been applied to, you know, questions as diverse as quantum chemistry to things like toxicity prediction and, as I mentioned, antibiotic prediction. So in principle, it could be quite general. Now, I think the second part of the question is perhaps a bit maybe more thought-provoking. So as I mentioned uh, just a while ago, I have reason to believe that running this type of approach based on phenotypic data might be particularly interesting. The rationale for this is that one is not limited to, say, specific chemical substructures that are involved in drugging specific targets, and one might be able to integrate information across more broadly across different types of chemical structures to actually find new and interesting chemical matter. But of course, I would say that it's still early days in the applications of uh, machine learning to drug discovery in general, but also uh, the specific application of, say, graph neural networks. And I think one of the main contributions that we made by publishing this Nature Aging paper is that uh, we showed that graph neural networks can be productively applied to something like senolytics, whereas uh, up until now, the main, or I would say the most, one of the most well-known use cases for these graph neural networks has been the discovery of antibiotics. So I, I would say that uh, we're slowly kind of getting there, fueled by, of course, a lot of experiments and a lot of screening. But I would say it's uh, quite an interesting kind of uh, time to be in the space. Well, that's a good transition to the next part of the conversation. I want to talk a little bit about your new venture, Integrated Biosciences. The stated mission of the company is, and I'm just quoting off of your website, cellular rejuvenation with optogenetics and small molecules, subhead, we combine synthetic biology and machine learning to control cellular stress responses for next generation therapeutics. So please unpack that for us. Yeah, there's uh, quite a lot of loaded uh, words there. Um, <laughs> the main idea is that uh, we are combining two new 
I would say frontier, uh, new, if you will, technologies. One is optogenetics. One is machine learning, but applied to very chemically diverse chemical spaces. And we're trying to combine these two technologies in order to discover small molecules in particular that modulate key stress responses, including things like senescence that are relevant to aging and age-related diseases. So the main punchline here is that we believe that small molecules have been underappreciated. And ideally, we would like to treat aging and age-related diseases, just like how antibiotics treat, say, bacterial infections. I want to connect a couple of these dots. Cellular stress responses, optogenetics, machine learning. So I can make a guess about how those things are connected, but I think you'd probably do a better job of articulating it. Stellar stress responses is really just a generalization of, say, like, say, senescence. So, like, senescence is one specific stress response. It's uh, senescence evolved as kind of a tumor suppression mechanism where you stop cells from dividing because they're sufficiently damaged, such that if they keep on dividing, they might become cancerous. So, senescence, as I mentioned, is one example of a stress response. There are many other stress responses. So, cells respond to different things like nutrient deprivation, like uh, loss of uh, proteostasis, etc. What has been interesting is that I think the field has acknowledged that aging is really an accumulation of, say, haywire slash dysfunctional stress responses that are caused by various types of cellular damage. And so we at Integrated, we're trying to kind of look at these stress responses holistically. We think that senescence is only a piece of the bigger puzzle. We think that things like uh, responses to nutrient deprivation, proteostasis, et cetera, are also parts of, say, uh, the aging puzzle or the hallmarks of aging. But we are trying to kind of get at these diverse and very stressed responses using a combination of machine learning to identify new small molecules that modulate these stress responses, as well as using optogenetics. So I think the Nature Aging paper shows what we've been doing for the machine learning side of things. For the optogenetics uh, side of things, we recently actually also published a paper in Cell Systems back in July, showing that we can have optogenetic control of the integrated stress response. So that is a pretty loaded phrase uh, to unpack that. That means that we can control proteostasis, the rate at which cells make new proteins using light. And by that, I mean we can shine light, say blue light, onto these engineered cells in order to control how fast they make proteins by activating the stress response. And the main idea for this is that this is one example of the type of synthetic biology platforms that we are developing in order to have a more fine-tuned control of the biology, which will then feed into the high throughput screens that, for instance, we've been doing for senolytics and ultimately feed into machine learning models that enable us to crawl chemical space of billions, if not somewhere that's, you know, between billions and 10 to the 60 compounds in order to discover new small molecules. Yeah, I know billion, trillion, quadrillion, but I, I have no idea what 10 to the 60 is called. So um, we, we could just use the numbers. So it sounds like you'll be using an approach related to the one that's described in the paper to identify some of your leads in these systems that involve the optogenetic tricks that you just described. That's correct. And I would stress that uh, it's really a marriage of approaches, if you will. So uh, we view what we demonstrated in the Nature Aging paper as really a proof of concept 
that graph neural networks and machine learning models more generally are useful for generalizing and exploring kind of these large chemical spaces. But of course, the quality of any, say, machine learning model is limited by the quality of the training data. And that in turn is limited by how good, say, your screens are and how good, say, your reporters and how good your understanding of the biology is. And so that's basically what we hope to improve using the, syn bio, the synthetic biology arm of things, including optogenetics. This next question kind of brushes up against an IP question. Are you going to develop the leads that were identified in the paper at Integrated? We have IP for them. Okay. And you may or may not develop them, and you will tell me about that at a future date. Yes, that will depend on the science. <laughs> right, exactly. Okay, fair enough. So the, you'll ask some questions about it, and based on the answers to those questions, you will or will not move forward. That is correct. That seems reasonable. Okay. All right, so you, you come from MIT. Are you in Boston right now? I split my time currently. Um, so currently I'm traveling in California, but yes, you should on a good day find me in Boston. <laughs> Okay. Well, there's also good days in California. And along those lines, Integrated's press releases come from San Carlos. So is that where the company is going to be based? That's correct. So Integrated Biosciences is currently based at MBC Biolabs, a fantastic incubator space in San Carlos. And basically, that explains why sometimes I'm in California. I come by and say hi. Yeah, I feel I, I would love to, actually. But Felix, I mean, Boston's kind of a big college town. Like, there's a lot of smart people there. Why start the company in California? As you know, uh, San Francisco Bay Area and Boston are, say, the top two. I would say Boston is number one and San Francisco is number two. Sorry, number one for what? For biotech. Thank you. All right. We can we can argue that point at a later date. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I would say that for Integrated, the decision was pretty easy. And we basically got free lab space from NBC Biolabs and Mission Bio Capital, uh, kind of their VCR uh, was one of our first investors. So when choosing between paid and free, I, I think the choice is pretty obvious, even if you have to, you know, make the sacrifice of living in sunny California. <laughs> I would contend that for a longevity biotech company or a company that's interested in focusing on diseases of aging, that this is a place where this being California, where I'm sitting right now, is a great place to be part of a larger community of startups that have similar missions. But certainly Boston is also a vibrant and amazing place to do science and to do biotech. In fact, BioAge just sponsored a longevity biotech meetup at MIT this week. And I stupidly did not send you an email inviting you. I apologize for that. Oh, no worries. I was not there anyways. <laughs> well, I feel better, but you'll definitely be on the mailing list for the next one. And I mean, there's definitely an appetite there for conversations about longevity biotech. All kidding aside, it sounds like you're enjoying the time in California. Oh, yeah. I've been fortunate to be part of the founding team of Integrated and part of, you know, its first days. Yeah, I'm just so excited to see where it takes us. Can't complain about being in California. I was about to ask you what's next for Integrated, but I think I'm going to ask you, given the pretty early stage that you're at, what's first for Integrated? What does the next year of your life look like? Yeah, great question. So at least at Integrated, we've been full gear ahead on the science. So uh, what I mean by that is that, you know, there's so many different ways of doing things as a biotech startup. But at least for us, uh, we are investing heavily in the science and in terms of building out different things, including optogenetics platforms, including new and unprecedented small molecule libraries that uh, only we and perhaps a handful of others have access to and also kind of opening up new regions of chemical space. So these are regions of chemical space that, you know, you might not find anywhere else in the world. 
So we are thinking along those scientific lines and hoping to push forward with a lot of the science. Uh, as you mentioned, Chris, uh, we are a seed stage company, and so it's quite early days for us. But just as evidenced by the fact that we're able to accomplish so much with so little time and also at such an early stage, I think really is motivating for us to really press forward with all these different areas of science. Fantastic. I hope the next year of your life goes so well that I can have you back on the show uh, next year this time and you can tell us all about it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's a pleasure as always. Felix Wong of Integrated Biosciences, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Chris. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast.bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at BioagePodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.